Welcome, everyone, to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Damon Linker of The Week, Bill Galston of Brookings and The Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. And we are delighted to welcome this week the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, Benjamin Wittes. So thank you, Ben, for being here. Hello to one and all. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, you do so much great work, and uh, we could talk about a lot of it. But but specifically, the reason we wanted you to hear this week is because uh, it seems that there's a baseball card with your name and picture on it that's being circulated by the Department of Homeland Security. So uh, can you tell us about what happened? Yeah, so it's a weird story. Uh, it started uh, around the 19th or 20th of July when I received a document from inside the Department of Homeland Security's intelligence uh, unit that described an expansion of authority to collect intelligence on U.S. citizens and uh, others in the United States uh, pursuant to a new mission that had been defined as an important new Homeland Security mission. And this was uh, the protection of federal property, which did not seem all that remarkable, but also the protection of monuments, uh, whether they were in federal possession or state or even private ownership. Uh, and um, uh, this struck me as a pretty extravagant expansion of the idea of homeland security that you could collect intelligence on U.S. persons to protect, say, Confederate monuments. And so my colleague Steve Vladek and I uh, uh, studied the document and wrote about it for Lawfare. And in response to that article, I started getting uh, uh, documents sent to me by other people at uh, this unit. Uh, the, the, it's called the Intelligence and, uh, and Analysis Unit, otherwise known as INA. And when I would get these documents, I would just screenshot them and uh, post them to Twitter um, and with a little bit of explanatory material about what they were and what they meant. And unbeknownst to me, each time I tweeted one of these documents, uh, um, somebody at the INA office would write an intelligence report about it. Um, and that is a pretty unusual thing to do. You don't usually have intelligence reports filed about people doing journalism. Um, and uh, some somebody in INA was sufficiently offended by this, that the two intelligence reports about me and one about a New York Times reporter named Mike Baker uh, themselves leaked to the Washington Post, to, to my uh, colleague and friend Shane Harris, who wrote a story about it. And uh, the result was that, uh, number one, uh, Chad Wolf, the acting secretary of Homeland Security, uh, stopped the collection of, of uh, the collection as intelligence of material related to First Amendment protected journalism activities. Um, and secondly, the underlying intelligence reports about me and Mike Baker both leaked to me. Uh, and so we published those. Um, and third, the flow of documents continues. And so both there has been a series of stories uh, in the Washington Post, uh, on Lawfare, and in Politico about how this entity within DHS has really uh, been collecting in a very aggressive way with respect to protesters particularly in Portland, but probably elsewhere as well. Now, the pers one person um, at the agency has been reassigned as a consequence of this, right? Correct. So the acting head of INA uh, was a former FBI agent named Brian Murphy. And Mr. Murphy was uh, reassigned within 24 hours of the Washington Post's breaking this story. 
Mm-hmm. And what purposes uh, were served? What were they doing with this information about you that they were including in these intelligence briefings or, or reports? That they and, and tell us the meaning of this baseball card thing. I mean, you know, we all remember that uh, after the U.S. invaded Iraq. Um, the uh, intelligence services produced a, a, ba- a set of ba- what they call baseball cards, which were the name and photo and descriptions of various people in the uh, Saddam Hussein government that they were searching for and sort of wanted individuals. Uh, how, how does the baseball card thing happen with you? Well, so I don't, I don't know that I was the subject of a baseball card. Um, oh, okay. The One term, of the reports said that. The term baseball card shows up in one of the documents that I disclosed. And um, the I, I, I'm certain that your uh, history there is correct, that it is a sort of imported from the Iraqi counterinsurgency uh, uh, project. And, you know, I think it's a reflection of a kind of the importation of a counterterrorism mindset to, you know, what's really, uh, I, I don't want to diminish what's the violence that's happening in Portland, because I think it's some of it is, is pretty serious, but it is not a counterterrorism matter. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And the sort of importation of that to domestic law enforcement and crowd control is, I, I think, the meaning of the, the, the significance of the fact that they were using words like baseball cards to describe what are presumably, uh, um, you know, co- brief collections of intelligence on individual protesters. Um, the what they thought they were doing with respect to me is completely mysterious to me, even having read the intelligence reports themselves. Um, the reports are uh, what are called open source intelligence uh, reporting. Uh, they uh, contain many, many more words than the tweets that they report on, but they actually mm-hmm. don't do more than disclose the fact that I issued these tweets with these two documents in them. Um, and they really amount to nothing more than somebody sending an email around saying, you know, Benjamin Wittes sent this tweet today. Um, The significance of it is not actually what they said about me, which, you know, I I think every member of government in all departments should be reading my tweets obsessively. And I think they should (laughs) all be sharing them and, you know, pointing them out in memos. And if that were what had happened, I would be, you know, kind of rah, rah DHS. Um, But when you cast something as an intelligence product, you are actually saying that it is relevant to one of the agency's mission sets because DHS is not just allowed to collect files on anything it finds interesting. It's not allowed to say, you know, let's keep an official file of all of Mona Charon's columns um, because that is, you know, keeping, that's monitoring a U.S. person for First Amendment protected activity. And so DHS is only allowed to collect, much less disseminate intelligence, when it's collecting against one of a few specified missions and these are missions include things like counterterrorism, you know, counter weapons of mass destruction proliferation, you know, major organized crime, drug trafficking, um, domestic terrorism, you know, you know, these kind of big themes. And you have to have some reason rooted in one of these uh, one of these missions before you are allowed to collect anything. And so I don't mind at all that they, you know, read my tweets and send them around. Um, once they start showing up in intelligence reporting, there's a important implication there that what seems to me to be obviously First Amendment protected activity, which, by the way, you are not allowed to collect against, um, is somehow connected to one of these missions. And I, I do think that, you know, 
that is a problem that we had in a big way prior to the post-Watergate reforms of the intelligence community. And I do think it's very alarming that it seems to be creeping its way back in and not alarming, by the way, vis-a-vis people like me, because you know I'm a kind of privileged actor here. I have um, a network of sources throughout the intelligence community that uh, you know leak things like this to me. I have lawyers to the extent that I need them to protect my legal rights, and I have these two platforms to reveal information on Lawfare and my Twitter feed. So I'm not really that worried about myself, but I do think there's a group of people that we should be very worried about, uh, and that's the protesters. Um, You know, protesting is every bit as much of a First Amendment protected activity as the reporting on DHS that I do is. And I do think if they're behaving this aggressively toward collection of my work, Uh, Lord only knows what they must be doing to your average protester in Portland, who, by the way, does not have a network of sources in the intelligence community, does not necessarily have access to all the counsel that he or she might need, and by the way, does not have platforms on which to reveal the misconduct either. And so that's actually, I think, the real concern here. Now, you said a moment ago that you do not want to uh, minimize the extent of the violence that was taking place in Portland. So let me ask you this. Would it be okay for DHS to compile dossiers on suspected members of domestic organizations like Antifa? No. Um, It would be perfectly okay for DHS to compile information about that may be relevant to stopping a planned violent action. And that may include a lot of the same information that you're describing. But for for DHS to have a dossier on a person without a pending investigation of that person uh, if that person is under investigation, it should be being done by by the FBI, by, you know, if there's a criminal matter to investigate, it should be done in the context of a properly predicated investigation. What DHS Got it. should be, uh, you know, the DHS, it is, I think, perfectly okay for DHS to circulate intelligence like, hey, a, a planned march by the following organization Um, is being infiltrated by people who want to throw Molotov cocktails at the, uh, at, at the police, Uh, you know, that's a planned act of violence, but spying on people is generally not something that we do in this country, at least not to us persons without a proper criminal predicate for it. Okay, now let me give you an example from a couple of examples from the Obama years. Um, There was the case of James Rosen, who at the time was a correspondent for Fox News, who was named as a criminal co-conspirator for alleged violation of the Espionage Act for basically doing First Amendment activity, reporting on uh, U.S. policy toward North Korea. Um, The Attorney General, Eric Holder at the time, later acknowledged that uh, he had signed off on this document and uh, uh, a uh, FBI search warrant request and uh, that he felt that it was the gravest uh, mistake of his tenure. And also James Risen, a New York Times reporter, uh, the Obama Justice Department uh, went after him as well. And uh, the FBI was monitoring phone records and engaging a lot of other activity that seems to um, to uh, implicate First Amendment activity. So um, how do you respond to that? Well, so the two cases are both very different from each other, but they're both very different from this situation. So let's let's first of all talk about the James Rosen case. Uh, So that arose in the context of a leak investigation, and uh, they were trying to figure out, they knew that somebody had given him this information. Uh, The act of giving him the information was 
you know, likely a violation of the Espionage Act because the material was classified. And so they accessed his phone records, not the substance, the contents of the phone calls, but the who had called whom. Uh, that was a very aggressive step to take toward a journalist. They got a lot of criticism for it. Um, uh, it has been a source of friction between the press and the Justice Department, at least since the case of Brandsburg v. Hayes in the 1970s, when the Supreme Court ruled that that sort of thing was legal. Um, and the question of when you can and can't go after you know, you, you know, basically force, you, you know, sp spy on the reporting process by way of finding uh, out something about a crime that has taken place by somebody other than the reporter is a longstanding source of friction between the uh, Justice Department and, and the press. Now, um, whole, as you, as you rightly note, Holder, um, uh, Holder, uh, did not concede legal error, but he conceded that 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 it was that he sort of wished he hadn't done done it. And this per, this incident provoked a uh, pretty longstanding dialogue between the press and the Justice Department, which I think was pretty fruitful um, for a while and has kind of dried up in in recent years. Um, the rise the rising case is a little bit more complicated because that was a. Um, a really a blowing of a of a major classified program and and activity and the justice department you know they take that stuff pretty seriously um so i think that one's one where you know uh the department may well have been the equities may have more favored the department in that situation. So here, there's a real difference, which is, first of all, there's no criminal investigation of anybody here. Um, you know, the person who leaked this material to me, this is unclassified material, did not commit any crime. Um, and I don't know that there's a leak investigation. The, 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 the intelligence report that was filed on me is not an investigative document. It's an intelligence report. Um, and it, you know, it's basically Ben Wittes tweeted this stuff. Um, and so, you know, I would actually feel better about it if it were in the context of a, if it were in the context of a criminal investigation, the parameters of which I had some understanding of, um, you know, at least then you say, well, okay, you know, their job is, you know, they're investigating a, a supposed crime. I have my role in life. They have their role in life and the two roles conflict. Here, I don't think really that's what happened. I think what happened was uh, they're not supposed to be doing what they're doing and they did it anyway and they got caught. And when they got caught, they you know, the secretary immediately curtailed it and removed the head of the office. And so I think they kind of acknowledge that they are, you know, on very thin ice on this one. Yep. And by the way, um, acting secretary, um, on the front page of Lawfare Today, which I recommend to people, um, the, <laughs> you have an article about Chad Wolf and the fact that he is actually not the legally constituted head of the agency because he was appointed... Uh, as a as acting and does not have um, Senate approval and uh, what he's outlived his time right uh, that you can be acting or something like that right not just him but remember the person serving underneath him Ken Cuccinelli uh, does not even have the title of the acting deputy secretary although he keeps calling himself acting deputy secretary he is actually his formal title is the senior official performing the duties of the acting deputy secretary <laughs> because even the Trump administration will cannot argue that he is legally in the position that that he is legally the acting deputy secretary yeah. So rather than Ben Wittes needing a lawyer, I think maybe Chad Wolf might be the one who, or Ken Cuccinelli <laughs> might be the one you know, who it, needs a lawyer. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's actings all the way down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, if anybody else on this uh, podcast wants to ask Ben anything about this, feel free now. Otherwise, we'll move on to the president's uh, wonderful uh, interview with Jonathan Swan.
Yeah. Wait, may I make just a brief point, Mona? Please. Uh, and that is, I'm not convinced that it's an accident that this occurred on the watch of an acting secretary who presumably would very much like to be the real deal and get, and get confirmed. There is a real danger that if you think you're on probation, you will either be overly zealous or turn a blind eye to overly zealous subordinates in the name of impressing the guy in the Oval Office uh, who is always watching these things. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know I, I, this is you know this is almost a comical incident, but it's dead serious because it points to a an important governance issue that this administration has been, I think, blithely disregarding. Yeah, that that's a that's a good point, and and I would add that if you look at the materials that Ben was good enough to tweet out. Um, the way apparently they're trying to get the boss's approval is by this kind of hyperbolic, heavy breathing characterization of the protesters. Now we've all agreed on this podcast. There is some really bad violence that has happened there. There, you know, it's not acceptable to try to burn down the federal courthouse and so forth. But um, the these people in the Department of uh, in in Department of Homeland Security. Are, are amping up the rhetoric and saying these are violent extremists, you know, these are these are um, anarchists and uh, whatever. All they're, doing, the, all they're so, doing is quoting the president. Yeah, yeah, and uh, exactly. And so uh, it is. Uh, uh, th- that's that's the way to his to his heart. Um, all right, let us uh, speak of the man himself now, who gave um, uh, not satisfied with his brilliant performance with um, Chris Wallace. Um, he felt the need to sit down with Jonathan Swan, um, and uh, and his his interview was um, well, it was remarkable. So let's start with the fact that the president really doesn't seem to be able to do math at all and understand the nature of what we're up against with this virus. Um, a th- you know, back when he had his Tulsa rally. He said in the course of his comments there that uh, you know that he had told his people to slow down the testing. Okay, so some people pointed this out at the time and said the president is obviously confessing there that he's tried not to increase testing in America but to slow it down. And his people said, "Oh, please, he was obviously joking. You know, there you go again, and so on." Well, probably. 250 times since then, the president has repeated the error of saying that the reason we have so many cases in America is because we have so many tests. And he said it again and again and again with Jonathan Swan. Um, And uh, so Damon, um, he doesn't seem to understand that when you look at the number of cases per, the number of positives per thousand tests, that rate has been going up. He can't seem to grasp that it isn't just a matter of more testing, right? Well, of course, it's 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 elemental, and there are any number of other objections one could raise. You could look at the the, the rate of positive test results on however many tests we're doing, and that's right. significant. You can also look at the number of deaths, and right. that and Swan really went after him on that too. Uh, actually, I think the, the clip that was circulating the most uh, the morning after the interview had to do with that issue and comparing uh, whether we were talking about kind of the, the fatality rate among people who are sick versus the, the number of deaths in the population as a whole. The president is just utterly clueless about this stuff. And I think we all knew that, although it is, of course, instructive to to get the the proof there in in a live to tape interview uh, before all the world. Now, will anybody notice or care? Uh, I don't know. I really wish they would, but uh, you know, the reality, as we've seen over and over again, is that we have a kind of presidency as as kind of reality show performance undergoing here all the time. And, you know, it seems like many of the people on Trump's side of these things care more about him getting in a good zinger in a tweet 
than they do uh, about whether he actually grasps what's going on. I mean, he also, I believe, said in that interview uh, when confronted about the fact that we were approaching 160,000 deaths, he said, yeah, it is what it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah. I guess that's true. Uh, but then again, anybody could say that and you're the president of the United States and it's happening on your watch. So we would expect a little better than that. I think kind of fatalism. Yeah. Um, and saying, you know, the, uh, we, we closed down it. Look, let's, let's acknowledge that he did get called names when he closed down some of the traffic from China. That is true. People said that that was a um, ethnocentric or whatever move on his part. So yeah, he got criticism for that. Um, but uh, of course, the larger point is that he keeps citing cutting traffic from China and then Europe as having been the greatest thing that anybody has ever done, when of course, all it was, was the first step, right, toward then having a, a, a very coordinated effort to fight the virus here at home. And that was, of course, never forthcoming. But as um, you as you alluded to also, Mona, it, he didn't cut off travel from China. No, he didn't. He, he didn't. only did not allow foreign nationals who had flown within the previous two weeks to fly into the United States from China. If you were a U.S. citizen and had been in China, you could come. If you uh, had a With green card right, mm -hmm. or green a family card, member, yep. Yep. Uh, you um, and so there were, in fact, lots of people coming 40, in. 40,000. That's right, 40,000. And uh, besides which, within days, several other countries also began to implement uh, bans on travel from China. And as we learned with the coronavirus epidemic in New York, uh, the virus there seemed to have come, maybe it came originally from Wuhan via Milan or someplace else in Italy, but most of the cases that came into the United States on the East Coast had a signature uh, on the disease that suggested they were from Europe as opposed to directly from China. So, I mean, he's been terrible on that. But part of the problem is that he also is getting fed these charts by mm -hmm. people on the staff. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he had his sheaf of papers just as he, you know, by this time with uh, uh, jo Jonathan, he was, you know, he uh, he had them in his hand when he was doing it with Chris Wallace. He had to stop the interview and get somebody to go get them for him. Uh, but they are misleading. And the staff, you know, I, I don't assume, Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, that they are feeding him what they he wants to him hear. They are feeding him what he wants. That's Instead right. of reality, which Absolutely. is a scary thing. It's like, you know, the emperor, you know, and not wanting to bring the bad news. That's really scary. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, ben, what do you make of the fact that he has spoken to Vladimir Putin eight times since March? I have never known what to make of his uh, relationship with Putin. Um and his attitude toward Russia itself. Um, I think he is, uh, there's something very weird about it. Um, the most benign account that I can think of is that he's uh, got a, uh, a kind, he's kind of got his back up about the criticism of it. So he does it in order to, uh, you know, kind of make his, uh, critics shiver. Um, look, the unifying criticism of him from uh, people who have been, you know, all the people who have purported to be foreign policy adults in the room around him is that he is grossly ill-informed, highly informed by, highly influenced by his prejudices and he has a weird affinity for Russia and dictators. And I think, you know, you, you don't have to get more nefarious than that to explain it. I do always worry about what the, uh, what the other possible explanations for it could be as well. Uh, Bill, when he was questioned by Jonathan Swan about the encounters with Putin, and he and he said, you know, you didn't raise the matter of the bounties on the heads of American soldiers that that uh, Russia is paying. Um, 
he said, okay, so this is Swan speaking. He says, so it's because you don't believe the intelligence. That's why, sort of in the form of a question. And Trump says, you know, it's interesting. Nobody ever brings up China. They always bring up Russia, Russia, Russia. If we can do something with Russia in terms of nuclear proliferation, which is a very big problem, he says, you know, this would be wonderful. Well, you know, he he was operating in sort of, uh, he was sounding like Putin's defense attorney. Um and uh, and and a little later, he he said to uh, Swan, "Listen, Russia doesn't want anything to do with Afghanistan. Let me say this about Russia: there used to be a thing called the Russia used to be a thing called the Soviet Union." He's explaining this, by the way. <laughs> he says, "But because of Afghanistan, they went bankrupt. They became Russia. Just so you understand, okay." The last thing that Russia wants to do is get too much involved with Afghanistan. They tried that once. It didn't work out too well, he says. Now, this is really amazing, partly because he thinks he's telling Swan something, (laughs) giving him new information. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but also what's interesting, isn't it, is that he he poses as Russia's defender and he's ready to say, hey, listen, you know, we gave, we we paid for weapons against Russia when when they invaded Afghanistan. So fair is fair. First he says he didn't know about it, never never came to his desk. Then he says, well, we do it too. So in other words, it didn't bother him. It did not bother him. Uh, well, Four years ago, if he'd said that, uh, I would have fallen out of my chair. Yeah. Uh, I don't anymore because this is the umpteenth time that he's made a very cynical moral equivalence argument, usually in defense of Russia, but but sometimes just to bat away criticism based on uh, human rights principles or anything of the sort. Uh, And... uh, this is just part of his mental armory, if that doesn't give him too much justice. <laughs> uh, but while I'm, while I'm about it, uh, there's something else that jumped out at me about the interview that started right at the beginning, you know, where Swan is talking to him about his relentlessly positive attitude, you know, and basically saying, come on, Mr. President, do you, do you, really, do you really believe what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Trump came back basically and said, yes, I do. And I recalled something that came up during the 2016 campaign, starting when the, at the age of six, his family was extraordinarily influenced by Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Mm-hmm. And Peale Peel was the family clergyman thereafter for quite some time. And apparently young, young Donald was very much taken you know, with, this, with this idea that if you believe in yourself, all things are possible. And that, that, that argument, that contention obviously filled a big hole in his soul. And I think it's continued to fill it ever since. And now it's just become part of his, either his reflexes, his DNA or what have you. And uh, he is, he is incapable of thinking the worst of anything he's engaged in. He's fully capable of thinking the worst about people that he regards as enemies are engaged in. But when it comes to his own endeavors, uh, the more positive he is, the more likely he is to succeed. Well, Damon, it's, um, as amazing as it seems, um, he's convinced a lot of other people too. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, it, it's the strange kind of inversion of of the parallel you often hear that, like Ronald Reagan ran for re-election, saying it's morning in America, and Trump, has, you know, came in talking about American carnage, and since then his tone has been so dark, uh, kind of compared to kind of Reaganite. Uh, Republicanism, but but the the inversion of that is what what Bill was just talking about. That it's kind of it, you, he combines uh, this this Manichaean outlook on the world and the country, where uh, where basically myself and all the people who support me 
are fantastic and and we're doing wonderful great things and then those on those who don't support me are are actually terrible and awful and everything bad about the world can be attributed to them and this is something i've written about in a few recent columns that i find quite uh, unnerving and and frankly disturbing about the the prospects for uh politics in this country when when the leader no longer really sees uh, himself as the leader of the whole country, but does the kind of classic populist move of effectively saying only some of the people are the people and the only people who really deserve uh, to, uh, to kind of be in my good graces are those who vote for me and those who might not like me so much, you know, they're the problem. So you're not just voting for me, you're voting against half of the country or even more of the half of the country in the current political alignment. So I, I think that, that that is the the most troubling dimension to this whole this whole tendency. Linda, the one of the traits that I think people who don't support Trump um, have the most problem understanding how his supporters can overlook is this um, complete and utter lack of ordinary human civility, modesty, a, a sense of the occasion. He cannot take himself out of any situation, no matter how important. So, you know, the, the John Lewis thing, uh, look, um, uh, Barack Obama uh, gave a beautiful eulogy for Lewis um, even though, uh, let's face it, he didn't have a perfectly cordial relationship with Lewis all the way along. I think he wanted Lewis's endorsement, and it went to Hillary Clinton instead in two thousand eight. Did you know Barack Obama has a pretty big ego, as we know, but he overlooked that in the because of the historical importance of this man and uh, and so forth. And and, and, uh, and even more telling, Mona. Yeah. Uh, John Lewis did not go to the inauguration for get George to yeah, W. Yeah, Bush yeah, either. Yeah, yeah and yet, right, exactly. He, he not only came to the funeral, he gave uh, uh, a very nice uh, eulogy as well. Exactly. And, and, and there is that quality about him. Everything centers around him. Um, he has a very, very small world. The world encompasses only, I believe, people who uh, share his blood, literally his family. Uh, and even among his family, he seems to have favorites and, and not so favorites. Uh, and then the next group of people who are people who have been with him through thick and thin and for a very long time. Um, but even there, it's not clear that his loyalty extends to them. And this, you know, We've long talked about his narcissism. What's surprising to me, though, Mona, is not that he has these views or he behaves in these view, these ways, but as we've discussed many times on this program, the whole idea of the, the Christian right has been to bring a kind of moral sense uh, to politics. And the fact that they forgive him all of his transgressions and all of his peccadilloes and all of his misbehavior, but that they also just ignore the fact that he has um, what, you know, Jesus Christ called, you know, the, the chief virtue, which was love, a charity uh, in the Christian sense. Um, that is what has been so striking to me. And I think it what it says to me is that a lot of people who profess this great Christian faith um, have elevated Trump to a kind of idol. And uh, some of them talk about him as King David. They talk about him as somebody who's flawed, but, um, you know, is nonetheless God has elevated to this position. And it really does, um, I think, undermine their seriousness in terms of their own faith. Yeah, well put. Um, all right, let us turn now to... Um this awful uh, event in uh, in Lebanon where uh, 2,700 tons uh, of ammonium nitrate were being stored at the port, which is right in the center of Beirut, um, and uh, not obviously kept in a secure way, and uh, it blew up. Uh, by the way, the Oklahoma City bombing 
was only two tons of ammonium nitrate. Uh, this was created such a huge explosion that it was felt as far away as Cyprus and registered 3.3 on the Richter scale. Um, and um, the reason I want to talk about it is not uh, because of because we're all experts on the Middle East or on Lebanon in particular, though we can get into some of Lebanon's problems, but because I do think this is an example of what happens when you have a really failed state and when the reason that you have such a failed state is that there's so much internal division. Um, so Ben Wittes, you know, Lebanon has a population that's divided among Christians and Sunnis and uh, and within the Muslim world between Sunnis and Shia, and they have this complicated power sharing arrangement. They had a long civil war that lasted from 1975-1990. But one of the results of this internal division is that when things don't go well, everybody knows they can get away with just blaming the other guy. Yeah. So uh, look, as long as people study uh, the tragedies of governance failures, I think this episode will uh, be mentioned in those studies. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, the tragedy of what happened yesterday uh, involves so many different layers. You know, why is there an industrial port in the middle of downtown Beirut? Uh, why are 2,700 tons of a highly explosive chemical being held for years uh, when people know and they're being inspected and warned that this is a dangerous situation? Uh, I once tried to calculate what the human cost in a natural disaster was of bad governance as opposed to good governance uh, or even just competent governance. And the way I did it was to try to look at the uh, relative cost in human lives of earthquakes that happened in close proximity in time to one another in Haiti and in Chile, uh, one country of which has, uh, you know, genuinely awful governance over very long periods of time. And the other has relatively uh, middling but fairly competent governance. Uh, and, you know, the earthquake in Haiti uh, was literally a hundred times, two full points on the Richter scale, which is logarithmic in character, literally a hundred times stronger in terms of how violently it shakes the ground than uh, the earthquake in Haiti. Um, and it killed one one hundredth the number of people uh, died in in Chile than in than died in Haiti, and so you know that's like when you put those together, that's a factor of ten thousand, and that's the difference between having good government and having bad government, uh, and this is an example of that. You know, it's a, uh, a, a an explosion so vast that um, people actually thought it was a nuclear blast. You know, it wasn't, but it, it, it was that dramatic. And it sheared off flattened buildings. And that is a cost of bad government. And I just, you know, just feel strongly about this. We should not, you know, sit here in triumph over, over Lebanon because they have bad government and we don't because we are going through exactly the same thing right now. It's just that we don't experience it that way because it's taking place in slow motion. And, you know, we've had 150,000 people have died. Uh, and a very large percentage of those deaths were entirely preventable with decent, capable government. And in exactly the way that conscious decisions were made in Beirut not to do things about a situation that was dangerous and was likely to produce uh, very large numbers of casualties. We have exactly the same thing happened here over the last six months with a much higher rate of casualties. And so, you know, I do think what happened in Beirut is an example of bad government, um, but I think we should be very modest about uh, uh, being too critical of that, given our own state of governance right now. 
Yeah. Um, Bill, the uh, Beirut used to be called the Paris of the Middle East. Um, it was a beautiful city. Uh, and now uh, half of the country lives below the poverty line. Uh, the electricity is only on for about three hours a day. There is hyperinflation and fuel shortages. Um, and, you know, there there wasn't any sort of, uh, and of course now they've been hit with COVID as well, but there was no natural reason for this. It wasn't a, an earthquake. It wasn't a terrible hurricane that blew through. This was all human caused, bad government, as, as Ben Wittes was saying. I don't know what else there is to say, except you know, to try to put ourselves in the position of ordinary Lebanese who are trying to lead minimally decent lives. Their, their country and their way of life was collapsing before this happened. Yeah. Right? The country had gone effectively bankrupt. Uh, the, the elites who've been, who've been holding power and trading positions for a quarter of a century uh, it's hard to tell which was greater, their ineptitude or their corruption. Uh, they have been hit by a surge of refugees from Syria, more than a million, which amounts to about 20% of the total pre-existing Lebanese population. Uh, COVID-19, and now this. I mean, this is... You know, this is a tragedy for an entire country. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's perhaps it's an opportunity, as many Lebanese are saying, uh, to start all over again, right? To tell all of the heirs of these warring families and clans that have dominated Lebanon for so many decades you know, what Oliver Cromwell told the long parliament, <laughs> right? In the name yeah. of God, go. Yeah. Uh, and, and just start rebuilding from nothing because nothing is what they have left. It's just yeah. incredible, right? Uh, this is, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to be in a country which has never experienced the fruits of a relatively prosperous and advanced civilization. But to move from where they were a few decades ago to where mm -hmm. they are this afternoon, my God. Linda, the thing that, look, we are not Lebanon. Uh, thank God our problems are more manageable. But the thing that I find frightening about the Lebanese example is the way the divisions within the polity allow corruption to flourish. Because the you will the, the population doesn't want to hold people accountable if they are told, well, either it was, you know, it was the Christians or it was the Sunnis or it was the Shia, it was Hezbollah who was really responsible for the for or, well, at least we're sticking it to the people you don't like. And that part does have echoes in our own politics. Well, it does. And by the way, we haven't mentioned yet that uh in his first news conference immediately after that explosion, the president of the United States indicated he thought it was an attack, not that this was uh, the result of fertilizer uh, blowing up. And he, and he subsequently has doubled down on that and, and is suggesting we don't really know and there's an investigation going on. But you're, but you're absolutely right. Well, Linda, Linda, can I just respond real quick? Yeah. It, he did, it was even worse than that because when he was questioned, he first he tossed off this ignorant comment about it was an attack. And then when later when he was questioned about it, he added to the lie by saying the generals had come to him and told him this. Right. Some generals. And yeah. People, yeah. And when people checked with the Pentagon, the Pentagon referred them back to the White yeah. House. The, obviously. <laughs> the, 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 ol the only thing he didn't do, I don't think I'd have to go back and replay the tape, is he didn't say that they came to him and said, sir. sir. No, no, he did put the sir <laughs> in there. He, he did. He did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was another sir yes, story. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it was. That's, that's his tell, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's good. Yeah. He doesn't play poker because that certainly is yeah. his tell. Uh, well, I mean, but the fact is that you're you're right about this. These divisions. Look, I don't think we're going to become Lebanon. Lebanon no. uh, was has been problematic for literally decades. Uh, 
the cultures in that part of the world are different than ours. The whole question of the rule of law uh, and our long tradition of obeying the rule of law uh, and holding that sacrosanct um, goes back uh, hundreds of years. Um, but uh, we are on the road uh, in that direction. I mean, we have a president who, you know, apparently asked his ambassador to the court of St. James to intervene with the uh, United Kingdom government and try to get the uh, British Open uh, to move and be played at Turnberry, his uh, failing golf course in Scotland. Uh, <laughs> an inspector right. general has been fired. Um perhaps in part um, over something to do with that. Um, we have, you know, constant self-dealing in terms of this administration. Um, you know, he's, he, has, he may be anti-China, but he's perfectly happy for Ivanka to have gotten lots of trademark protection for her brands in China uh, early on in the administration. So we are beginning to see the kind of corruption we have always associated with countries that did not follow the rule of law and do not have our ethical tradition. Uh, and it is emanating from the White House and it trickles down into others within his administration. Uh, we've you know, seen several members of his administration have to leave in uh, disgrace. And clearly, at least among his base, they accept this. Uh, they accept this level of petty and large corruption. And that, to me, is a very troubling sign for the future. Yes. And, uh, and what, what you find often when you speak to Trump supporters about this is they will retreat to this, this talking point. They will say, well, of course, don't. Are you so naive? You don't think they all do that? Come on, they all do that. And of course, that isn't true. And once you accept that that is the case, then you, you have complete cynicism, and then that opens the door to total corruption, right? It's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. What it is. When, exactly. You, when you start accepting this as the standard, then if my next door neighbor cheats on his taxes, maybe it's okay for me to cheat on my taxes. Yeah. And then everybody starts cheating, and then no one pays, and then you've got a collapse system. And then you're Sicily. Right. <laughs> um and many other places, I might add. <laughs> um, Can I just uh, jump in on this? Yeah. I, mean, I think that one, one thing to add to what everyone is saying, and including what uh, uh, Ben Wittes was saying at the, at the top of this segment about uh, COVID and the death toll being a function of bad government, I very much agree with that. But I also think it's important for us always to keep in mind as some uh, as Mona and and Bill and uh, Linda have all pointed out the the point about uh, the Trump voters and basically Republican voters as a whole in this and their role in it, and if you want to to kind of imagine uh, the implications of this, and I think dire implications for the country is, ask yourself. I think we all would agree that when it comes to basic competence, a Hillary Clinton administration would have been preferable to a Donald Trump administration, even if you didn't uh, have a huge love of Hillary Clinton. But imagine Hillary Clinton president during the COVID outbreak and attempting to enforce a mask wearing uh, rule on the country. Can you can you imagine the response from all of the people who would have also a lot of them voted for Trump and yet they barely lost in this imagined scenario? Are they going to go along and actually abide by public health restrictions attempted to be enforced by President Hillary Clinton? Or in well, fact, is this going to become... A, a rallying cry of opposition that's 10 times larger than what we've seen under Trump, where Trump has kind of gone back and forth. So one week he's in favor of trying to do things to slow down the spread. The next two, three weeks, he's talking about how we need to liberate Michigan. And so he's all over the place. And some of the time, at least, he's actually on the side of trying to stop the spread. But, uh, but we wouldn't then have, I think, um, I, I think we would have something very, very ugly that uh, could even be uglier than what we're seeing right now. So that point and, and that could happen as soon as Joe Biden wins, if he wins, if he comes in and then tries 
to uh, reverse course on some of these things and to uh, impose some restrictions to try to really uh, tamp down on virus spread, uh, we, we will probably see a kind of spontaneous uh, immersion of that uh, itself. Maybe not as much as we would have under a Clinton presidency because she was sort of uniquely loathed. But again, it's an enduring, it's an enduring problem and it's a problem I don't think any of us quite know how to solve. Yes. Um, I think you make an excellent point, but I, I do think that the nature of the Republican electorate has changed somewhat in the last four years um, under Trump's influence and become um, much more um, truculent and much it's come much more to resemble its leader. So I, I mean, it's possible, who knows what would have happened during a Clinton term, but, um, but I do think that there wouldn't have been, for example, this um, widespread resistance to mask wearing if Trump had not telegraphed that that was the position. Uh, so I, I think that was a, a problem of, of Trump's leadership there rather than the nature of the Republican response. I mean, you know, it was both obviously, but, but I do think that with absent Trump's uh, signals, th there wouldn't have been this widespread uh, desire to, to make an issue of mask wearing, but I could be wrong about that. All right. Um, let us now turn to our final thoughts. Uh, ben Wittes, let's start with you. So while we've been sitting here, uh, Lawfare has published uh, my latest uh dump of documents from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which I wrote up this morning uh, before we sat down to record. Um, this uh, pile of material, I wish I could say it was cheerful. It's not. It is uh, a series of documents that describes in some detail how the uh, aforementioned senior official uh, performing the duties of the acting deputy secretary uh, uh, took the civil rights and civil liberties office uh, that had previously been reviewing intelligence product that concerned them um, out of the loop in, in the review of intelligence product. And uh, they did it in such a way that they now get to review less stuff. Uh, the intelligence uh, office, the, the, the INA office, uh, now gets to impose time limits on it that on review that can kind of mean they don't have time to review stuff seriously. And uh, they also did it in a way that um, uh, the, uh, uh, the office can uh, limits the the number of reasons that they can review it at all, and so it's a um, it's a, a like a pretty interesting look into why uh, you know how this uh, this office became uh, quite as untethered as it has become, and I think if you look at these documents and read my new account of it, you will. Pray, come to understand, I think, why the uh, why that office is being now able to be quite as aggressive as it has been over the last several weeks. So, in other words, everything's great. Good government. Uh, all right. Linda, what do you have for us? Well, um, as you know, there are negotiations going on right now on trying to extend uh, aid to Americans, including extending stimulus checks to Americans. Um, and the Senate is is currently uh, in, I guess, negotiations with the White House. It's, it's unclear who's exactly negotiating because it seems like the White House is threatening to do things unilaterally. But there's one very important provision that I'm glad to say a handful of Republicans have signed on to, and that is to correct the inequity that occurred uh, earlier in the earlier package, which excluded from receiving checks American citizens who happened to be married to individuals who lacked a social security number from receiving any check even for themselves uh, in that initial package. Uh, that was an attempt, uh, obviously, to exclude uh, households 
that had within them people who might not be legally present in the United States, but it could have been, it, it could have uh, excluded others as well. Uh, if they lacked a social security uh, number, uh, their spouse did not receive uh, the check that went to all other uh, American citizens. Well, Marco Rubio, Tom Tillis, and a handful of Republicans are trying to fix this. It remains to be seen whether they will succeed, but it certainly would be a good thing to do, uh, not just for the individuals, but obviously would help the economy. Uh, more people getting those checks and spending the money uh, hopefully would keep us from going uh, in the direction we're going in the economy with uh, a more than a million jobs again lost this last week. Oh, and by the way, Linda, I'm sure you saw that uh, thousands of students and others who were not American citizens did get the yeah, check. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people who got them that uh, <laughs> that maybe you know if they were trying to make this go to Americans, but you know these uh, these families, uh, the fact that you married somebody who uh, may not, in fact, be uh, someone who has a social security number. I mean, you could be a uh, resident alien legally present in the United States and file your taxes, uh, you know, through a TIN or some other uh, number and, and pay your taxes. So if you're an American married to an Argentine. Well, that's right. right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. exactly what's going you on. You wouldn't have gotten your check. You would yeah. not have gotten your check. So let's hope they change that. All right. Uh, Damon. Uh, I, I do have something more substantive than this, but just uh, for uh, listeners to be aware that uh, while we've been uh, recording this podcast, uh, President Trump uh, claimed to a small crowd in Ohio today that uh, Joe Biden is, quote, against God. Uh, the, oh. quote, the quote is, no religion, no anything. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God. So, I mean, that's that's where we are in early August. Let's uh, Damon, he yeah. is one of those papists, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, so uh, my my uh, more substantive offering is uh, a very interesting uh, kind of reported column, I guess you could say, by uh, Elizabeth Brunig in uh, the New York Times. She's, uh, I, I believe, James Bennett's last hire before he ended up being pushed out a couple of months ago at the Times on the op-ed page. And uh, Liz Brunig is a very interesting person. She's uh, a, a devout Catholic, but very much on the kind of socialist left. She was very pro-Bernie Sanders. Uh, and uh, she writes uh, usually about uh, the Catholic Church and uh, its various struggles in a way that nobody else at the Times does. So she has a, a piece up today, Thursday, titled, uh, it's a quote from someone in the piece, the title is, Racism Makes a Liar of God. Uh, and the subtitle is How the American Catholic Church is Wrestling with the Black Lives Matter Movement. And it's it's an interesting reported piece about something that, uh, you know, a dimension of American life that doesn't get nearly as much uh, attention in the, in the mainstream press. So uh, I recommend it to people. Thank you. Bill Galston. Yes, well, Continuing Ben Wittes' motif of breaking news while, <laughs> while we've been recording this podcast, uh, for all those who believe, as I do, that the management of the COVID-19 pandemic will probably be the central issue in the 2020 general, general election, uh, the following report from the Pew Research Center, which is pretty much the gold standard for nonpartisan research, uh, survey research, may be of interest. Uh, it's a coronavirus survey. 69% uh, of Americans uh, believe that their state governments lifted the coronavirus restrictions too quickly. 73% say that there's little chance that uh, people will go back to restaurants uh, that or workplaces or that schools will be open until we wrestle the coronavirus uh, to the ground. 62% say that compared with other wealthy countries, the U.S. response to the coronavirus outbreak has been less effective. And then for the money question that you've all been waiting for, uh, how are different entities in our society doing in the fight against COVID-19? Uh, 
you know, hospitals and medical centers and public health officials and state and local officials all get strong majority approval. And as for the president, uh, 15% say he's done an excellent job with the coronavirus, 21 say good uh, for a total approval in the mid-30s, and 63% say, say that he's done a fair or poor job and with 48% willing to go all the way and say poor. Uh, as I said, if it's going to be a coronavirus election, uh, this will be a heavy burden for the president to carry up an increasingly steep hill. Bill, were those um, were those Americans or were those voters in that survey? Uh, these are adults. Adults. Okay. All right. Very interesting. All right. I, if you all will indulge me, I have, I have two things to mention this week. Um, one is uh, a column that ran this week by Stacey Abrams and Karen Bass uh, about the importance of the census and everything they say about the importance of the census uh, is, is not really controversial. It can assent to all of it, except for one little thing that they said that just has been said so often and it, and it rankles. They mention the, uh, this is their words, the despicable three-fifths compromise that was in the Constitution, and they say, built on the assumption that each black person was subhuman, three-fifths of one, unquote. Well, that's actually not what the three-fifths compromise meant. It didn't mean that black people were three-fifths of a person. It's, this constantly gets say, stated. It's wrong. Okay. So, when the constitution was being drafted, there was an argument between the free states and the slave states about who would be able to vote. And the free states wanted only free citizens to vote. And the slave owners wanted the, to vote themselves and to be able to vote for based upon their, their enslaved people as well. So that would have given them, you know, multiple times the voting power that they would otherwise have had. And so they wrangled about this and eventually came up with this with this compromise that said, you know, well, fine, we'll, we'll count each slave as three-fifths and give you the voting power there. But the voting power went entirely to the slave owners. The Black people were not treated as three-fifths. They were treated as nothing. They didn't get any vote and uh, and they and it was you know they they had no rights and uh, I suppose you could say they were being treated as subhuman yes uh, but the point was that that the slave owners got to enhance their own voting power by counting their slaves which by the way had they not been counted uh, the slave states would have lost uh, many an election that followed uh, and it wasn't of course until the 14th amendment that this was fixed okay that was my first thing second thing I want to mention is that as we know the Republican party has become pretty much an entirely given over to being a Trump cult the latest uh, entry is that Senator Ron Johnson, who is the chairman of the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, has been working on an investigation of Hunter Biden and his connections to Ukraine. Um, now, by the way, Lindsey Graham and Richard Burr have expressed reservations about this and concerns that Johnson may be being fed disinformation by pro-Russian Ukrainians. Some of this information is coming from Rudy Giuliani, of Rudy Giuliani's uh, Russia-backed uh, sources. Um, and in any event, it amounts to, first of all, in the age of COVID, is this the best that uh, Ron Johnson can be doing with the precious time that, that, that he is uh, devoting to this? And it is exactly the kind of investigation of Biden that Trump attempted to extort from Ukraine's president uh, and for which he was impeached. All right. That is it for us this week. We thank Ben Wittes for joining us uh, and uh, thank you one and all. You can uh, rate us and review us, which we appreciate, and we will see you next week. Next week.